A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mamas. As you all know, I talk about mindfulness and meditation as a tool for us mamas to help us be calm, kind, forgive ourselves and be the mamas we want to be every single day. It is my mantra for all of us. Let's learn how to use our mind. Let's learn how to use our breath and practice the art of being present so we can be the women we want to be. But I know it's hard. I know that commitment to meditation can feel really, really daunting. That's why in all of my programs, I start with a three-minute meditation for you all. It starts with three minutes a day. And then from there, when you begin to notice how different you start to react and feel, you're able to do more. But there's a science behind this. And that's why I really wanted to speak to Dr. Elise Bailey-Lou. Elise is a coach, a meditation teacher, and a social entrepreneur who trained as a doctor and psychiatrist. And she is the founder of Mindful in May. Maybe you've heard of it. It's the world's largest online mindfulness meditation program and runs all through May. She's a mama also, so she knows the reality of us trying to do this with our little ones in tow. In this interview, you are going to hear the undeniable evidence of how amazing mindfulness and meditation is. If you have been thinking about this, but keep putting it off a bit like you want to put off going to the gym or anything that you know would be good for you, but who's got time for that? This is your interview and make sure you listen all the way to the end so you can hear details of Mindful in May, which is coming up very shortly. And there's a free five day program for you to learn how to be more mindful how to use these skills so you can, in the moment, pull yourself back from that anger and become the mama you want to be. Enjoy. Elise, thank you so much for joining me and all of my beautiful mama tribe. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. What I love about what I know we're going to speak about over the next half hour or so is that this is a beautiful balance between the practical benefits of mindfulness and meditation and the science behind it. What I really hope that mamas get over the next little while is inspiration to bring this into their life because it can be such a game changer. So let's first start with your 
personal story about this. How did you come to being mindful in May? <laughs> mm, mm. So I'll try and make a long story short. <laughs> Basically, I was, from a very young age, I was really interested in understanding the brain. I was really passionate about sort of helping people, which led me into medicine, which led me into psychiatry, because I just wanted to know everything I could about the brain. And I also had a bit of an influence in my life through my mum, who was a psychologist and was also really interested in meditation. Having said that, she didn't do a lot of it. She read a lot about it. And there were lots of books in our house uh, from all of the leaders in the field, John Kabat-Zinn, Jack Confield. So I sort of had a priming towards meditation. But um, it wasn't really until I both had a personal need come up in my work context from just working in psychiatry under a lot of pressure, facing trauma every day, and also going to medical conferences. And, and one in particular uh, over a decade ago where I heard one of the world's leading researchers in the field of mindfulness and the brain, and he put up some brain scans and talked to them and shared some of his research. And this completely blew my mind and I would say was a complete turning point in my life whereby I realized that what I'd been reading about and starting to practice had really, really solid science behind it. And at that point was really just sort of emerging as a new scientific field around what we know about the impact and effect that practicing meditation can have on your entire body right down to the level of your genes. So I pursued my study in psychiatry, but I was becoming a little bit disillusioned. I was feeling that I was learning a lot about the brain and the mind in crisis and sort of at its worst. But what I was really discovering I was interested in is how do we train the mind to reach its greatest potential? Because, I mean, this sort of miracle inside our heads, this brain has so much untapped potential. So I went off, started studying meditation more seriously, went to lots of silent meditation retreats. And it really became the focus of my life. And then Mindful in May emerged from that as a way to share what I was learning, to integrate some of the science that had come from my medical training, and also to have a positive impact in the world. So for a lay person like myself and so many listening, can you explain to us what you saw on that slide about the brain that day and mm. what you now know that meditation does for us? Yeah, absolutely. So what I saw on this on this screen, which literally it just was such a funny moment. I thought because I was I was really not sure where I was heading in my career, and I was like, oh, now I know where I'm heading. Mm. I'm, I'm really following this. So what I saw was that there had been research done by Richie Davidson, who was the speaker, this researcher, that revealed that two months of regular meditation actually changed the structure, the architecture of the brain in really important locations, which specifically was the prefrontal cortex, which is fancy name for really the highest functioning area of our brain that has a lot of different functions, some of them being our capacity to focus and pay attention. Very interestingly, our capacity to manage our emotions, so to actually manage ourselves more effectively when we get triggered in anger, frustration, impatience, and find wiser, more balanced ways of responding to our emotions and also decision-making um, and various other, other functions. But really what struck me as so powerful was that 
a practice which you're doing with your mind. So really it's about, you know, you're sitting there, you're doing something that's quite intangible. It's it's with the mind, but somehow this is rippling into your body and it's changing your biology in really helpful ways. And the implication there on that brain scan of a part of the brain that's grown thicker and 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 grown is that we know that that means that that part of the brain is functioning more effectively. So it's like a muscle. You can think of it like a muscle. You know, if you're going to the gym and you're improving your bicep strength and your biceps getting bigger, you're better able to lift heavier things. So if you think about the prefrontal cortex as growing um, in these areas, then you're going to get better at focusing your attention. You're going to get better at managing your emotions. And that's why mindfulness is often referred to as a vehicle to greater emotional intelligence. So what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation then? Like when we talk about this and we talk about mindfulness, I mean, I know my answer, but I'd love to hear your answer. What in your mind are we talking about when we talk about mindfulness or meditation or are they one and the same for you? Yeah, I I, I remember asking myself this question uh, as well. And I think to some extent, it can be semantic, but overall, I think that meditation is a more general word that refers almost to something that you're doing with the mind. So I think of it almost like the word sport versus cricket. So sport would be like meditation. Cricket is like mindfulness. So mindfulness is a particular school of training that sits under you know, meditation um, but meditation is something that you're doing with your mind. There's various different schools and philosophies and types of meditation. And mindfulness is really one of those, you know, one of those philosophies and schools which comes from, you know, 2,500 years ago, really from a Buddhist context, but which has been integrated into secular life. And, and I guess, you know, the Buddhism in some ways, you don't have to be Buddhist to do it. It's It's got very scientific applications. And then the other thing I would say is that definitely within this world of mindfulness, which certainly has surged over the last, particularly over the last six years, um, I think the word gets thrown around in a very casual way. But actually, the word itself comes from the ancient texts. And in Pali, the word is um, sati, which means to remember or to familiarize oneself with. So the question is, what are you remembering? And it's really remembering to come back to this present moment, remembering where your attention is and constantly coming back here, or alternatively, familiarizing oneself with the workings of the mind in service of reducing suffering in our lives and increasing happiness. Um, in In ancient times, it was, you know, discovering enlightenment, if you like. So I think, yeah, mindfulness does have very solid roots and I think it has been kind of watered down a bit and the word gets thrown around very casually, but it has a very rigorous history and philosophy and and science of mind behind it. Finally, sorry, one more thing I would say is that obviously, you know, mindfulness meditation, it's not simply about doing a practice that you dedicate 10 minutes or 20 minutes a day to that's about sort of you know, stepping into this bubble of calm and bliss and then walking back into your life of chaos and it having no effect. It's really seen as it's a the meditation training is is a way to train the mind so that we can be more mindful in everyday life. In other words, more present, more wise, um, and experience all of those benefits. 
Yes, that's how I've always seen it. It's like, as you said, the gym reference, the gym mm. analogy. If you go to the gym, you work your muscles in that moment. So when you need strong muscles later to pick up your child, to do the various things you need to do throughout your day, the muscles are there. It's like that in terms of the practice that we have every day, whether it's 3, 10, 20 minutes, mm. we do that. So we have the muscle in other times of our life to be able to catch our thoughts, recognize, mm. you know, when fear is there or when mm -hmm. a pattern or an old story is triggered and know how to release that thought, not get attached to it. So it's the two go hand in hand. One is the practice so you can use it later in life, right? Yeah, yeah, and so that it actually really ripples into all areas of your life, whether that's your parenting, whether that's the way you show up to your children, your partner, your work, and, you know, all the rest of it. So I, yeah, it is, it really, and, and that comes back to the word mindfulness to remember. The thing is, if we're not doing the practice, the training, like the sort of metaphorical gym training of the mind and putting that time aside, then during the day when triggers happen, we don't remember, we just forget. And so we're caught up in the emotion. We we don't have that self-awareness. It doesn't click in. So, and, and one thing that often comes up in the teaching for me with students, people say, you know, how do I know if this meditation's working? Because every time I sit down, it doesn't necessarily feel good. You know, I find my mind's chaos and it's just all over the shop. So what? how do I know this is actually working? And I always say to people, the way you know it's working is actually by looking at what's going on in your everyday life, not what's going on in your actual meditation, because that's where the benefits actually start to show up. You know, it's like if you commit to this practice, even if your mind's chaos when you're sitting every time you practice and you feel agitated and you're thinking, this isn't bliss, this is like the opposite of bliss and calm. But then one day you'll be, you know, going about your business and let's say your child has a tantrum or triggers you and you notice that your response has changed out of nowhere there's just this difference there's this hang on a sec like there's a there's an awareness that kicks in you know you're not totally lost in this interaction with your child you have a capacity to actually pause and ask yourself quietly what do I need to do here and and maybe even tune into your body first and recognize wow this tantrum is actually stressing me out I need to manage my own emotional state first so let's just kind of release my tension in my body, take a deep breath, and then, you know, have more capacity to meet this tantrum with greater groundedness. And, you know, this pause, it sounds like such a small thing, but this is the difference between being caught up in your old habits and even your inherited legacies, you know, of what we learn from our own family to finding a new way to completely stepping into new possibilities of how we can be in our relationships in our life. Oh, it is music to my ears hearing you speak of it like that because that is exactly what I want all of the mamas that listen to this to know is that I have spoken with and coached and supported thousands of mamas now and they so want to deal with it differently in that moment. It is why they sign up for my programs. It's why they buy the books. It's why they're here listening to this because they know in that moment with the tantrum or whatever it is, they don't want to tip into that anger or overwhelm. But at least they think the solution is in that moment too and it's not. It's the pre-work. It's the post-work. Sorry, say 
say that again. They think the solution is. Okay, I'll say that bit again. They think the solution is in that moment too. They think they need to work on how they're dealing with it in that moment. But actually, it's the pre-work. It's the meditation they would have done that moment. It's the way that they continually support themselves and check in with themselves that will eventually lead to them dealing with it differently. Absolutely. Can I say something to that point actually from the science as well, which is really interesting. So, you know, there's a practice, a mindfulness practice called the body scan. And this is really essentially where, you know, you're coming into the moment and you're, you're working, you're, you're simply moving your attention through the body, right? And you're sensing, you're actually feeling the body, noticing the sensations. And I remember when I started this practice, it made no sense to me. Not only did it not make sense, I found it incredibly boring. I wondered, I just don't understand how feeling the feelings in my fingers, my arms, my legs has any relevance to my life. And this is a waste of time. What I discovered over time, and I just committed to it and I learned about the science, is that actually this practice grows a part of the brain called the insula. So this part of the brain that is really responsible for how sensitive we are to the feelings and sensations within our own body. And what's really interesting about this is that for many of us, when we get triggered in life, so let's just take the tantrum. I'm coming back to the tantrum because I've got a three-year-old, so that's my that's my lens. <laughs> that's my landscape. We, we can, you know, you can talk about teenagers as well. Same thing. It's just sort of a more grown-up tantrum or even adults with our partners. We're all having tantrums all the time. But um, coming back to this tantrum, the problem many of us have is that we're not actually tuned in enough to our bodies and actually emotions are a bodily experience. And so as you train in meditation, you're, the part of your brain that is sensitive to it's called interoception is the technical word it's really just your ability to sense your internal body um, becomes more finely tuned and what this means is in your everyday life you get much better at sensing and picking up when an emotion is starting to rise so instead of catching anger when you've completely lost it you feel the anger rising sooner and you can sort of respond to that earlier and that gives you that freedom to not you know yell and scream but actually do something before it gets to that level and I mean this is just profound it really and and also it's not about being perfect you know it's even when you do these practices you still lose it sometimes but I have to say that it's been the most valuable thing in my own parenting journey to just have these tools to kind of help my own nervous system and emotional world like calm down in those moments you know so I think that's just talking to you know what we understand about how the practice grows the brain in certain ways and how interestingly this relates to our emotional world because I think that's where it's really fascinating because really our lives are made up of constantly changing emotions and we know that the way we manage our emotions is the way we manage our emotions is is how our children learn to. So it's not even what we say, it's the modeling, that's everything, you know. So if our children are watching us be able to regulate our emotions, that's giving them an education in emotional intelligence. Oh, absolutely. And that's what we all want to do is we want to be able to hand them these tools so they too can use them as they grow. But I have had the same realization of the change in my behavior, the way I deal with things since 
a daily practice has become a non-negotiable. I used to be so fiery. I was so reactionary in my emotions Mm. growing up. And the daily practice, now I understand what I've been doing to my brain, (laughs) I just noticed Mm. the difference, has been profound. I am a completely different mother, friend, sister, daughter Mm. than I to be because of this and I thought it was very much a spiritual experience but uh, which I still believe it is but I can also see how you describe it how it's changed me physically and um in my brain as well and that is profound absolutely it's really I mean it's so exciting and you know there's the science which shows us now that really to some extent, we can be sculptors of our own brains and our own personalities. I mean, there's certainly temperaments that are fixed and so forth, but we just know there's so much capacity for us to sort of experience new possibilities. And I think that's really exciting. And I think the other thing that's important to understand about this whole area of neuroplasticity, which is really what we're talking about, which is essentially just the brain's malleability and adaptability throughout the lifetime based on what we're doing regularly is that if we're not doing healthy things and we're getting in habits that are negative, these are getting etched into the brain as well. So for example, we know like if you're constantly worrying and you have no tools to help you manage that, then what you're actually doing is reinforcing these neural pathways of worry. So we know people that suffer from anxiety, if you put them under a brain scanner, their amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, is actually larger in volume than those who don't suffer anxiety. And what's really fascinating is through mindfulness, what they've discovered is through, again, through a two-month program of mindfulness, people's amygdalas shrink. They reduce in size, which is a good thing because this is the part of the brain that does worry. So again, we see that regular practices that we put in place in our life are actually changing the architecture of our brain and enabling new skills. I love that so much. As someone who has a number of family members in my my beautiful little family that have anxiety, this is just music to my ears. But let's talk about the habit because, as you said, when you practice this for a two-month period, this is when you see the changes in your brain. How do we do that? How do we, in our busy, busy, busy lives as mamas and women and trying to juggle us so much, make this a habit. So let's just be real and say it is so difficult. <laughs> it really is very <laughs> difficult. And, and that's why I think that what I see is people coming to this when they've reached their absolute end, like they're in crisis, they're in, you know, they're on the verge of a divorce. It, like. It's almost like sometimes as humans, things have to get so bad before we prioritize things. So that's one thing to say. But I think we don't have to let it get that bad before we step on. And I think for me, really discovering the science and really understanding that this is not a kind of woo-wah kind of calming thing that we can just do to step into calm. This is a deeply transformative practice. Uh, the science says so, you know, and, and I agree there's spirituality there as well, which I value. But I think, I think that, you know, we're also busy to commit to something on a regular basis. We need really solid reasons. So I think learning the science a little bit is, is a really good first step to convince yourself that this is actually worth doing. Because I think 
we know that about physical exercise and even though it's still so hard to sometimes make that a regular thing I think most of us are aware of the science that says you know if you want to be healthy and physically fit you've got to train so science is one thing but I think I've learned quite a lot around habit formation and one of the experts that featured in Mindful May in the program because as part of the program you get to hear from all the different world leaders in the field of neuroscience habit meditation so one of them by the name of BJ Fogg who I'm a big fan of He's a professor at Stanford. He's an expert in habit formation and he talks about if you want to create a habit, here's what you need to do. He says start with a tiny habit. So whatever you want to do, choose something that represent, that is not going to take you more than 60 seconds, right? So in this case, it would be commit to 60 seconds of meditation a day. He says anchor the new practice to something that you already have a habit with. So for example, it might be something like brushing your teeth or whatever it is that you're doing every day, tag it onto that. And he said, once you complete the 60 seconds, literally give yourself a pat on the back because this kind of positive acknowledgement actually releases neurotransmitters like dopamine that kind of give you this positive kind of sense of, oh, I'm doing really well. And that tends to feed into the habit and keep doing that. And over time, just gradually increase that practice. So, so that was really helpful. So I think, um, those kind of ideas where I think people believe that, you know, you have to start with 20 minutes or however much, and that's just not accessible to busy mums. It's just not manageable, particularly when you're starting and you haven't even been convinced of the benefits yet. So that's one thing. I think the other thing that I've learned over the years is that community is everything. So we are wired for connection as humans. And I think that if you can combine community to developing a new habit, you're going to be way ahead and that's why things like, like, you know, personal trainers and, you know, boot camps, et cetera, for physical well-being, you see them on every corner now because they work. And that's what I've found through Mindful MA where it's, you know, all the programs that you run, Amy, that you're creating community and people are held accountable and they're sort of on a journey with others, I think is one of the most powerful secrets to creating a habit. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with, with you more on both those points. In my own journey and now what I share with mamas, we start with a three-minute meditation. That's it, three yeah. minutes. And that yeah. just is profound the way that it then changes so much in your life. But also you need others around you. You need that support and that community. And that's what I love about what you're doing with Mindful in May. You've got this free five days to mindfulness starting in April, which all the mamas listening can sign up. There will be a link in the show notes and on my website about how you can join this experience. So for the mamas that want to get started, who are really excited after hearing the science, and I'm so grateful that you could share that with us because I think it really balances that that woo-woo spiritual message. I think sometimes mm. we dismiss that. I don't have time for that because, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll feel enlightened. <laughs> but if you can mm. back it up with some science, it makes it a really compelling argument. So I really appreciate that. So what can people expect from this free five days of mindfulness, first of all? Yeah, so the free five days of mindfulness um, I run as a way for people to get a taste of what comes when they sign up for Mindful May, which is a paid program mm -hmm. and also a fundraising campaign. So what they'll get is they get sort of daily emails, they get a live guided meditation with me at the end of the five days and they get to hear some tr groundbreakingly exciting science from 
um, Stanford professor of psychology, Kelly McGonigal, who's written a book called The Upside of Stress. And she shares some really interesting science around stress, new science, which I was completely blown away by. Certainly not the science I learned in medical training about stress, which really just gives us a new perspective on how to relate to our stress in a way that actually changes the physiological, the body impact of stress in our lives. And it relates also to mindfulness and mindset, the certain ways that we think about stress and the, the fact that the way we think about stress actually changes the biological effect of stress on us. So mm. she'll be sharing some really practical, simple but powerful tools that you can apply straight away into your life. And you'll also get a couple of other guided meditations to explore throughout the week. And there's also a um, Facebook community where we'll be sort of exploring some of the ideas together. So there's a real sort of communal feel about it and um, you get some great information and guided meditations. And then that kind of gives you a sense of whether you're interested in continuing on. And then you've got the amazing program through May, which I'm so proud to be a part of. It was such an honor when you asked me. And Mindful in May, can you just quickly tell us about the charity side of it? Because that's the other amazing thing that you have done with all of this. Yeah. And this yeah. something that helps the world as well. Yeah. So Mindful in May started six years ago. And essentially, yeah, it's a one-month all-inclusive mindfulness meditation program. It takes people by the hands. You get daily content, practical tools from the world's best through video interviews that I've done, and every day there's a guided meditation. So you just show up to your computer, do your meditation every day. This will kind of help you with the with the habit. And the idea behind it is it's a clear mind for you and clean water for others. So it has this fundraising side to it, which is sort of like if you think about it like a fun run for your mind. So people go on a run and they get sponsored to raise money for a cause. So the idea here is that you sign up, you commit to doing whatever amount of meditation you think is reasonable. I set it as 10 minutes because I offer like a lot of 10-minute meditations and you kind of announce that to the world. So we know that when you announce what you're doing, you're more likely to stay accountable to it. And then basically you can get sponsored. This is not obligatory. This is sort of an extra part of it. So you can either make a donation to the cause, which is a way of sort of dedicating your month of practice to something greater than yourself. Or you can actually create a fundraising page and get sponsored to stick to your habit and the, and 100% of the funds that you raise go to um, funding Charity Water, which is our partner organization, which build clean water projects. And so over the years, we've raised over $600,000 and built many different wells, which you can have a look at on our website, mindfulmay.org, that are around all over Africa. And I think the incredible thing is that, and this is what the feedback I get, is that there's also something about being part of something that it's just a win-win. You're learning tools for yourself, but you're part of this collective movement that is actually just having such a positive impact in the world in such a sort of fundamental way around the issue of clean water, which is such a big one for people in developing countries. Mm, it reminds me of when I go to my beautiful yoga studio, Jiva Mukti Yoga here in Sydney. We always dedicate our class to someone mm. or something. They mm. always ask mm. us pause and think of someone in your life or a situation in the world and dedicate the next hour and a half to that because it really helps you kind of stay committed when your own mind and commitment is a bit muddy at times. It's like, no, I'm actually yes. doing something bigger than me. And it's beautiful. It's a really lovely yes. way 
to uh, practice. Hmm. Yes, and just this this idea of, I think the idea and the research that we know around happiness of sort of turning your attention outwards, you know, away from your own personal concerns and and really tapping into something bigger than yourself. It's you know not only does it help others, but it actually helps you, which is what the research shows. It actually lifts your own happiness and sense of connection in the world. So I think, and I I I deeply believe that building our own capacity for self-awareness is the key to a healthy whole happy world you know the more we become aware and present the more we can be connected to some of the big issues that are facing us as humans climate change you know war technology so many big problems and I just think that the more people that can learn these tools the bigger impact it's going to have on the world at large Oh, I totally agree with you. I think what we're doing here in these conversations and what the mummers that are listening are doing in their own lives has a direct impact on the future of our planet. I absolutely yeah, agree and, with you. And and yeah, and of our and of our children who are the stewards of that. And that's right. I think I think a lot of parents say, you know, how do I teach my kids mindfulness at various ages? And I say, you know what? The first powerful step you can do is actually get interested and learn this yourself because the ripple effect is so profound. I'll give a quick story. I think when I went on my first or second silent meditation retreat, I went on my birthday and my partner was not really a meditator and he was a bit sort of perplexed at why you'd take yourself away and do something as ludicrous as not talking for seven days and meditating for many hours a day. Anyway, he ca- I came back and his response was, I don't know what goes on over there, but I would happily grant you a birthday meditation retreat every year because, wow, like you, like he really felt the difference in me. And I think for our children, you know, if we can just, if we can develop these tools, we're going to be teaching them so much more through our behavior and our modeling than we do through giving them lectures and telling them things that we can't even do ourselves. Exactly. It is our greatest gift to them is to figure this out for ourselves. It absolutely is. Elise, thank you. I love the way you speak about this. And mamas, it is possible. It's not a scary thing to take on. It won't change the amount of time that you have and if anything you get more time so if you'd like to give this a try please go on the show notes and join the free five days to mindfulness and really learn about the science behind this and start your practice thank you so much my pleasure it's been a delight chatting with you I love the science involved in this episode. Yes, I am a deeply spiritual woo-woo kind of girl and I adore understanding the spiritual side of what I do each day. But to hear it so clearly, to hear the evidence of what this is doing to my mind and my cells and my body just cemented for me how important this is. I really hope it did for you too. I am so proud to have been asked to be a part of Mindful in May, and I would really love for you to be a part of it with me too. If you go onto my website for the podcast details of this episode, you will see a link to sign up for the free five-day program. It will also be shared on my social media as we lead up to May 
because I really want us to get this, mamas. As Elise and I talked about, this is how we change the world. When we become aware of the phenomenal power of our brains and our mind and learn how to use it, things will change and our world really needs that. So please join me and thousands of others around the world as we really commit to learning this. Until next week, mamas. Satnam. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.